Big Adventures with Brian Durker is supported by Dave Wagner and dedicated to all the scientists and river community who have worked to protect the Colorado River, Grand Canyon, and its environment. Thank you, Dave, for your support of Big Adventures. Octavius, can you uh, say your name and spell it? Uh, okay. Uh, my name's Octavius Siautua. That's O-C-T-A-V-I-U-S-S-E-O-W-T-E-W-A. Uh, and I'm from Zuni. Um, we're uh, over here at what we call our sacred mountain, Toy Island, and... Uh, been trying to do this podcast for I don't know probably a year and finally getting this opportunity and we're here in one of our most uh, beautiful places it's a nice spring up back here oh yeah it is and, gorgeous um, I've been making numerous trips down the Grand Canyon I work for the Zuni Cultural Preservation Office and I'm the supervisor for the Zuni Cultural Resource Advisory Team so I've this last trip uh, I think it was about to Maybe three, four weeks ago, I took some of the uh, new young religious leaders that are taking on that responsibility of take, uh, continuing our culture and our, our way of life. And so I took uh, nine new, eight new individuals down that have never been to Ribbon Falls. And uh, getting their fee- feedback from them, it was a spiritual moving um, trip for them. And uh, so I've like I said, I've made 25 trips down the river. It's 25 trips now. 25 trips down the river. And uh, I've, th- I've been in through the high flow experiment. And then this March, I got to uh, go with the Park Service on the low flow. And I've never seen it that low before. So it, it was an experience being in the river. And uh, looking at uh, some of those big boulders that make the rapids. <laughs> Wasn't it? Now, yeah. we were lucky enough to be on that same trip. Right, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, it's... It, it was an amazing experience. We went, we went clear from Tanner to below Deer Creek on the low flow. And so we had a really good luck. And one thing that was great about that trip, too, uh, Octavius, uh, for the listener, I mean, Octavius had a camera and he sat up in the front of the boat and it's some of the greatest footage I've ever seen down there and and it really you had a remarkable result from that uh, right it was fantastic um Octavius we'll get into more of that hopefully in our conversation one thing I am anxious to ask you is uh and I, I do this with our guests uh, sitting and oh, by the way, sitting in this place, this is a remarkably beautiful setting that I wish all our listeners could be here with us if they were real quiet and respectful of this place. But uh, to, to share uh, to share Octavius's stories with us in this location is a real honor and uh, it's a thrill for me. And I think you guys are going to enjoy 
what we get out of this. But Octavius, I'd like to ask, uh, and I always like to ask about the early Octavius, the early years. Can you tell us about exactly where you were born and kind of tell us a little bit about your childhood? Oh, okay. Uh, well, I I was born here in Zuni. Uh, we have our uh, hospital here in Black Rock. It's a little community. It just used to be um, the housing for the doctors that were there. But now we've put in some new uh, housing units there that uh, some of the Zuni people are now uh, part of that Black Rock community. But I, I was born here. I went to school here. And and oddly enough, being a, a religious leader, I went through 12 years of Catholic school. Oh, really? I didn't I, realize I went to Catholic that. school. And uh, <laughs> most of the time was pretty miserable, being told not to talking my language, being punished for talking in my language. And I thought I had enough of that for nine years, and uh, I got a scholarship uh, from the St. Anthony School. They paid for my way to go to school to, in the St. John's Indian School in Levine, Arizona, south of Phoenix. So I went to school there for, for four years, my uh, high school years, mm -hmm. and um, went through that. Was and, was it was that a step up for you from the parochial school or, or from the Catholic school? Um, well, it was a a really big change for me, because uh, growing up, I had grandfathers, grandmothers that only talked in Zuni, and our our whole household was all in Zuni. And f when I finally was sent away from Zuni, it was difficult for me because there was a lot of people there from different nationalities, different tribes, had their own language, and of course English was the only way we could communicate. And growing up just talking Zuni was difficult for me until maybe after a year I started making friends and really started opening up and, and learning how to communicate in English, and uh, from there it, it really helped me to pick up that English language. So it's my second language, but uh, I'm still fluent in Zuni. But being away for that long, um, I got, uh, came down with some sickness that even the doctors weren't aware, couldn't tell, they couldn't tell what it was. I went down to like 87 pounds. I couldn't walk anymore. And I had both of my grandfathers, they were um, medicine men and they were the leaders of what I am the leader of now, the Galaxy Medicine Fraternity. And uh, they, uh, both of them, my paternal, maternal grandfathers, um, raised me from the, from the sick bed. And, and so uh, I was obligated to join their medicine society. And from there, I, when I was initiated, I took a really big interest because I, being fluent in Zuni, I could uh, understand and picked up the prayers and the songs. But oddly enough, I noticed that our songs were not in Zuni. And I always had that question mark of where it came from until I joined the uh, advisory team and uh, did a lot of research. And I found out that all of our medicine songs here in Zuni are from the Toa language. That's Hamas and Kochti. And uh, so when I figured that out, I knew that our oral history of the medicine societies, looking for bandolier, traveled north all the way up to Bears Ears, through 
Moab, Arches National Forest, I mean National Park, and all the way up to Mesa Verde, Chimney Rock, and then Bandelier. When they got to Bandelier, they received all the medicine songs that we use now, and they they were the ones once they acquired the the information and, and the knowledge of the songs, they finally ended up in Zuni, here in Itiwana, where the people are already settled in the middle place. How interesting. So uh, I always wondered where our songs came from until I started working for the advisory team and getting that information from the elders of uh, that the, the language coming from there. So I talked to some in, um, Paul Tosa and all those people that I worked with from Amos. Uh, I sang some of the songs and they told me what the songs were saying. And are they words in the songs that are just unique to the songs? And you learned them uh, like new words with yeah, the songs? Yeah, just like new words, like like I learned English. Uh-huh. I had to learn these words. And uh, being there constantly, just every time that there was a gathering, listening to the songs. And what made it easy for me was my grandfather. He was the, uh, the leader of the Medicine Society. And um, he earned... He, had a lot of sheep and had some cows, some horses. So he had a farm up in Nutria that my father would drop off right after school was out. He would drop me off the next day. And I spent my whole summer with my grandfather. And at night when we put our sheep in, after dinner he would fix something for us to eat and then uh, he would sing these songs. And after all the songs, he would identify, this is the name of the group that I sang to this evening. And then he would uh, do a prayer, and then we'd go to sleep. And we would do that every night, different songs. Without knowing, I started picking up on those songs. Oh, yeah, yeah, how fantastic. So when I got initiated, I I sat down with the elders, and I started singing, and they were looking at me. Who's this young guy singing the songs? (laughs) <laughs> until my grandfather said, he's my grandson. That's my grandson, and he's going places. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when my both my grandfathers passed away, my uncle became the leader, and uh, he wanted me as his second-in-command. Mm-hmm. And being that young and taking on those responsibilities, I tried to get away from it, uh, using different excuses, uh, not doing it. I went to my, my parents, and they said, it's an honor. I asked my grandmother and said, uh, you're, you're, all your grandfathers were leaders of that, that you were chosen. And I asked my wife and I said, it's not up to me, it's you. You're, you're the one that's the medicine man. And so finally, after thinking about it, and I accepted to be a part of the leadership. And then from there, um, picked up all the songs, all the prayers and when my uncle passed away, they wanted me to be the leader, and uh, out of respect for my uncle, I said, I'll wait four years. We'll, we'll go without a leader, but since I'm second in command, I'll do the things that I need to do. And so I was looking at some of my young initiates who I could put in, as my second in command. And, and do you have a, a group in mind that could take that role? I've already, uh, the, the person that I initiated, I asked him because different clans have different roles and in order to be the leader of the Galaxy Medicine Fraternity, you have to be either a 
crane clan or a child at the crane. And he was actually, his mother is, is a crane. So he's directly in line to be in the leadership role because he's uh, a crane clan. Oh. So I asked him and he said, you've been the leader all these years and I'll just, uh, like me, I asked him and he didn't say anything. Yeah, he felt the he same way, like, whoa, 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 and whoa. Said, <laughs> asked his family and went through the same process and they told him the same thing that I was told. And uh, so he accepted uh, that position and from there, uh, and he was pretty open and learning a lot really quick. And uh, so right now, if I go anywhere, I don't have to worry about that part of my uh, obligations because I know somebody's here taking care of uh-huh. So How old of a gentleman is he? I think he's probably in his 30, 34. Oh, wow. So he's still kind of young. And, and that's what I was looking for. And, and he's always there. Uh, he's always there and, and listening. And, and now he's, uh, he's a big part of our, our uh, when we do sing for different occasions, that he's there and he knows the song. So. Oh, that's fantastic. And that makes you feel better. Uh, it must be worrisome in this modern age to, to keep your traditions with, this, with all this stuff coming at young people and stuff, just like you, you know, when you took that role. Uh, it's gotten a lot more complicated, hasn't it, for I think kids? Uh, with all the, uh, the, the smartphones, the tablets, the, the computers, really makes it difficult for for because we don't have all this information in a laptop or, or in a smartphone. And for the way I learned, it has to come from the heart. You have to have the desire. And your ancestors that passed away are the ones that are teaching you, not somebody else. Yeah, it's a, it's a, a, such a personal yeah. Yeah. transfer of those songs. And right, yeah, all that information. It's just not the songs. There's a lot of things that are done behind the scenes that are done by the leaders. Yeah, I, I, I'm uh, more and more understanding the full uh, the full calendar that you have in your obligations and yeah. stuff just by having gotten to know you and Ronnie. And, uh. Now, uh, what is the population of Zuni? Uh, uh, well, I think we're still, we're not, uh, we have been updated with the last census, but it was well over 10,000 that are living here in Zuni. But we have other uh, young people that are, are that went to different universities and, and um, got hired on by either universities or different companies that are all the way up to Seattle, Washington, Chicago. Uh-huh. Uh, there's Zunis that, young Zunis. Uh, uh, Texas has a lot of Zuni, young Zuni people there. Uh, once they completed their education, they found jobs within the states. And but during uh, big religious uh, gatherings like Shatlako and and uh, first rain dance, everybody comes back to Zuni. Yeah. And so we have a lot of our young people coming back to Zuni and being a part of uh, our two biggest uh, celebrations that we have here in Zuni and. Uh, and, and you know, uh, I've been lucky enough to have been invited to some of the dances. And it always impresses me when you're standing outside looking through the windows 
at the dancers and stuff, the, the attention and the, the respect that the young people, Zuni people that you're standing with right. show. It's a very important thing in this place. Yeah, I, I think that that has not changed, thankfully. Uh, our young people still has that respect uh, for our, our tradition and culture. And uh, I've taken uh, some youth down the river and the people, the young kids that I've taken down now are are going to universities and um, hopefully filling the, the positions of, as as our own ethnographers and uh, ethnology. Ethnology, I thought maybe an anthropology. anthropology yeah. yeah, I've been at, uh, wanting those young people to go to those two um, studies and, and get their education and come back and and really take over the cultural preservation office. Yeah, I can, I can see how that would be so important uh, to get these young people involved and cross crossing over into the, you know, like there's so much knowledge outside just the tribal traditions as far as what they could learn about anthropology, archaeology, and what they could share with these traditions. I mean, it's a fantastic direction for some of these kids to go, right? Yeah. Because uh, I've been putting a lot of positive seeds in, in their brain, um, telling them that a lot of that information out there was never done by the Zuni people. It was through different archaeologists that came in and um, got a glimpse of our history, and, and, and now they think they're the experts in putting that information out. Yeah. But uh, I, I want it our young people to get that information from the elders and use that information to start talking about our real history. Our, like this place here, it's, uh, it's our refuge. Um, we survived the Pueblo revolt here and uh, our oral tradition also states that we survived the great flood up there and those white bands around the, the Toayalan here is are um, marks that the foam made when it was receding, the water. Yeah. So uh, there's a lot of songs that were made from this mountain here about the, the Great Flood. And uh, you, can, you can certainly feel the spirit of this place by sitting here with yeah, you. It's, it's a remarkable spot. I, I was trying to figure out a place where we could be isolated and just sit here and talk and I think this is a really nice spot here. Truly honored that you would bring me here for this and you know um, a question I've often thought of um, just by history and proximity to the Hopi can you share with me like like don't aren't there shared songs in some cases and um, what sort of uh, relationship historically have the two tribes had? We've always uh work together as a tribe uh, even to this day they uh, I have uh, uh, an uncle that lives in uh, Second Mesa and he, he happens to be the uh, chief judge for the Hopi, Hopi oh, tribe. Oh wow yeah. So. Uh, um, Delford Leslie is his name and and uh, every time that we have a dance here that in, involves Hopi songs my brother always calls him up and start singing in, in Hopi and said, well, this is how it goes. You're, you're not pronouncing it right. And so, and then when they use Zuni songs in in, in Hopi, 
they call us and say, we're talking about Uanami and say, oh, you're talking about the rain. So there's that connection. And it's always been like that. Uh, we've always had people going to Hopi doing some dances in the past and they come here and do their uh, social dances. Yeah. So we had that exchange and uh, a lot of that uh, back and forth. Uh, Zuni people, a group would go there and they might find a girl there and, or a woman, girl would find a guy, so they would stay behind. And the same thing happened too, that the Hopis would come here, do a social dance and they, about an eighth of their people would stay behind. So there's always that constant exchange. Uh, that That's so interesting, but it really makes sense, doesn't it? Do you think long, long ago when there weren't a, a, a lot of people around that, yeah. there, that there would be that sort of connection. Yeah. And it's, well, it's really neat to hear about. Yeah. Because We've always had that uh, that connection with the Hopis coming into the Zuni Salt Lake and uh, stopping in Zuni and uh, according to Lee Cohen-Wissima that there are people that were making the pilgrimage would be housed in different houses in Zuni for a couple of days and then the Zunis would join them and they would go down to the salt lake. When they came back with the salt, they would stay a couple of days and then journey back to Hopi. Oh, so, yeah. So there there, there was a, a shared interest in, in spiritual resource. Yeah, and yeah. A lot of that information. Did, now, did the Zuni ever use the salt mines on the Colorado? Uh, we knew of our uh, a different salt than the, what they call the Hopi salt mine. Yeah. Uh, we've located that site, and it's just past else. It's that we now call it the Zuni Salt Deposit. <laughs> because uh, when I went down with Jam Balsam, we stopped there. I just, uh, I don't know, I, on a whim, I decided, uh, can we stop here? Because uh, i getting some vibes or, or, or something. So we stopped, went up there, and there was stalactites, stalactites, yeah, salt yeah. there. So we gathered the salt and came back down. And so Jan sat down with me and said, uh, did you know about this place? And I said, not particularly this place, but I knew of a place that our people came down to collect the salt. And he said, well, and, and I, I said, uh, Cushing actually was taken down here by the Zunis and he talked about the Zuni, I mean the salt, um, the salt deposit. And it wasn't the salt mine, so I knew it wasn't the one by the confluence. So, and then Jan said, uh, uh, Balsam said that they, they found a little a pottery bowl down there and it had a salt rim around it. Oh, and, wow. And so I figured that you probably knew about this place and I said, no, but now I know. And uh, so I said, it, if you found that, it was not accidentally forgotten. Our ancestors intentionally left it behind so when we come back, and if archaeologists found it, then we can say that it's our uh, ancestors' reminder that, that they collected the salt here. Oh. So when they found that bowl, I said, it, it's a reminder. They, accident, they didn't accidentally leave it. They intentionally left that behind. So when we came back... It, 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 it was a signature right. to tell you. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it, uh, if you don't mind my uh, exploring this... Uh, the Hakatai mine, or the, the uh, uh, not the Hakatai, excuse me, the, the uh, 
okra or the hemat hematite, hematite. Line down below 200 mile yeah on the Colorado uh, that was probably similar in, in the fact that the, it was explored by your ancestors yeah as I understand yeah well that that was I think that was really the main reason why they uh, made a pilgrimage was to ribbon falls from there to the hematite mine uh, the collection and uh, we stopped again this trip and uh, each one of the uh, the young uh, leaders got a nice bag full of hematite to bring home so uh, oh so you stopped there that hematite shows up in a lot of different places right I know yeah. it's used on the Hopi uh, deities or, or yeah. kachinas and yeah I always like to daydream about what it would be like being a trade item back then for as far as stuff got like uh, like shells you know from the Gulf or uh, can you share with us uh, what you know about these old trading routes or well with working with Chaco and Aztec and um, Homolavi Walnut Canyon a lot of these um, items were identified um, of course turquoise um Turquoise, uh, azurite, chrysocolla, hematite, uh, kaolin, um, yellow ochre. These are all the primary colors that are used in ceremonies, not just by the rain priests, but all the societies, the, the kiva groups, the medicine societies all use that, the paint. And uh, having an opportunity to find out that all of these places also used the same colors. So if you have an item and you come into a, a, a place where people are gathered and you have something to trade, and if you have something that they really want, then you're accepted into the community because you have the, the trade item that people will use. And You're the right guy. Yeah, you're the right guy to be accepted into this community. Yeah. And I think that's what happened is a lot of uh, people found out what was really needed. They would go out and collect and, and go to all of these different places. And I'm pretty sure they, some of these people were very well known within the communities. of If the person is coming in, then the people in the village would gather what they can trade to this individual for what they need. So a lot of the, uh, the trade items that are found, especially the paint, it's really difficult uh, for us. We, like the turquoise mine, we worked with uh, an individual um, that really identified where the Zuni turquoise came from. And it was two mines in uh, um, Salt River. Oh, wow. Uh, and it's on the Apache Reservation. And we had an opportunity to go to these two mines because I used uh, the reasoning of our ancestors going to these sites, making a shrine, leaving an offering to collect the turquoise because we just don't go to an area and take what we need. We have to leave an offering, so there has to be a shrine. So the White Mountain Apache gave us permission, and they actually had uh, two other uh, cultural preservation workers go with us and take us to the mines and came to the mines and uh, found the two shrines that we're looking for. So that was that was a neat thing with that the tribe down there yeah. as well. Yeah. That, 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 did that create more inroads? Yeah. When they had that rodeo Ch- Chediskai fire, 
we got invited to White Mountain. We spent, uh, went to Roosevelt Lake, the Roosevelt uh, uh, site, and uh, found out that the uh, the Apaches down in, in White Mountain are totally different. Uh, Vincent Randall, um, one of their uh, cultural preservation workers, actually stood up and said that we invited you here because these sites aren't, don't belong to us. They belong to you. And we need your help in order to protect these places. And I said, if, if the other Athabascan group only had that same idea, we wouldn't have any problems working with everybody. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a very, uh, that's a very noble approach, yeah. right? Oh, and, fantastic. And I, I use that example every time. Uh, instead of trying to be a part of somebody's culture, just accept that, you know, we federal government put us here, and I know that these sites belong to you, and we need your help in protecting these sites for perpetuity. And I said, man, if, if the other tribes work like that, we wouldn't have any problems. But uh, fortunately, uh, we're still encountering a lot of the uh, negative um, feedback from the from the other Athabascan tribes. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, with the changing tides, it's uh, it really brings up how important uh, of a role you play and bringing new people into to the traditions of your tribe. I think some tribes are having trouble with that natural progression of oral history. Yeah. And, uh, it, it's, a, it's a difficult thing. Yeah. Well, because when I first started working, I went to museums, I went to uh, national monuments, and, um, you know, the other tribes like Akama or Hopi would be there first. And when we got there, I said, well, Hopi came in and said, this is all theirs. And I said, and I said okay. Well, Zuni's here, and I say, this is all ours. <laughs> there you go. It's all ours. It's all ours. <laughs> but I think that is changing, that, that concept, that narrative. I've been working with Steve, uh, Stuart Kuyamtua, uh, and then uh, now Teresa Pesquel from Akama, and, and they've been listening to me uh, about this idea, the concept of our people being together a long time ago to have that shared culture of community lifestyle, community uh, completion of ceremonies. We all have kivas, we all have plazas, and we all have clans. Yeah. So it, how, how can we be so identical and some tribes still saying that they're different? How can that be? No. So now they're listening to us and I've been trying to get all the Puebloan people to make one statement saying that we are the same people. In the past, we are probably together more than we understand, but to have that same shared culture of plazas, kivas, community lifestyle. We had to have been together a long time ago to have that same still, that same concept of who we are. That, that really makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and you know, you just look at the human experience of all people. Uh, one day on earth, there were very few people. Right. And so now there's all these different groups of people, but there is a, a connecting element in all people, especially Athabaskan or the tribes are, no, are are so local in their proximity, and uh, it's it's hard to imagine it being any other way. Yeah, that's, well, that's brilliant stuff. Also, uh, working with the four southern tribes, um, we have different cultures, but we've 
started a, uh, a small group of young people called the Tribal Monitors, and uh, I uh, was the uh, student for the first uh, training. And uh, when they put us together, I had one uh, young woman from Akchin, one Tahana Antham, myself, and Hopi. They put four of, four of us together. And they wanted us to, they took us to a place like this and gave, gave us, okay, from there to there, see what artifacts you find, see what you can identify as being a TCP and make a map. And started talking to the young ladies and they were telling me that the saguaro cactus was their reincarnation of their ancestors that passed away. And I never knew that. And so that turned me on. I said, now that you identified that as being sacred to you, next time I come back and I have to make a report, I'm going to say that this plant is sacred. This plant is sacred because of the information that I acquired from another tribe. And now I want to support them and say that this is also sacred to the Zuni people. So if we have that concept, if we have that understanding of and coming to a, a a realization that we might be different in different ways but having this spirituality the 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 connection to the plants the connection to materials minerals connection to the land the view sheds the site everything that that we understand is what they're also talking about and so if we come to an understanding like that you know, it would probably work a lot better if, if we as, as tribes get together and talk about the similarities instead of the ways that we are opposite. Well, it, it's just like a, a family, you know. Uh, each child is different, but they're still brothers right. and sisters. yeah. And uh, you wouldn't want them to be all exactly the same. Anyway. No, well, I've got a good example. I've, I've uh, I had 10 uh, brothers and sisters. I uh, lost one brother, but... Uh, Two of them were military, different, went different ways, but uh, coming back together and, and family celebrations like graduation, you know, we we come together as a family. And I think that that is a really good way of looking at the, the way the tribe should interact with each other, like a, a, a brother or sister that, that have been gone for a couple of years, but we're still back together again. Yeah, I think that's a, a great, it's beyond a metaphor, it's it's a great way to look at it. Yeah. And if we could do that more with people in general. Yeah. Uh, maybe you guys can be some good leadership for all of us. Uh, <laughs> and by the way, you uh, the things that you revere have all, you know, I grew up here too in a different context in Flagstaff and um, uh, I, I'd have trouble arguing with anything being outside of what, if I have religion, it's closest to yours. I mean, it's just like maybe neither of us are Catholic, <laughs> <laughs> but, and I'm not knocking the Catholics, but uh, there's an awful lot of people that should revere the land and the sky and the water and the trees and the minerals and all that stuff, uh, yeah. More sacredly. I mean, it's just how it, it, it's been tough on our Mother Earth. Yeah. Because more people don't yeah. feel what you're feeling. But indeed, a lot of people coming from my context do feel. Uh, but they're kind of 
more confused. You have you have more of a focus on on that tradition. Yeah, well, and I think we being around that, we learn from you, uh, which I really uh, wanted to say. Well, I got it from my grandfathers. You know, it's uh, I was so fortunate to grow up with both of them that uh, learned a lot from them, and having that understanding of respecting the earth. Because if you respect it and treat it right, it's going to respect uh, us being farmers. You respect the earth, it's going to multiply into more food for you. It, it, from what I can see, you guys are doing the right thing in that uh, you're honoring your, the ancestor and, and taking their wisdom along with that honor. And uh, it, it's... Uh, it's a great thing to see. And it, it teaches people, too, that get to know you guys, you know, <laughs> teaches us all. Yeah. Well, that's why we have beautiful places like this, because, uh, you know, just, we almost went into that way of life where people sell things from Mother Earth and, and all for the betterment of themselves. And they say it's for the tribe, but we had a governor that, did some exploration for gas, natural gas, CO2, and coal. And we had all four of them here on the reservation. And when the religious leaders found out that our governor was in the process of starting mining for these um, uh, gases, the coal that uh, the religious le leaders got together and, and went to our governor and told him that we should never profit from Mother Earth. And we had a governor that listened to the religious leaders and he put a stop to it. So to this day, we've never drilled anything from Zuni. We've never profited, like timber sales, nothing. We, we've uh, managed to hold on that respect for Mother Earth. And when I go to meetings, I talk to the other tribes and I, I say that Zuni should be the loudest voice for respecting Mother Earth, because even to this day, I know the the companies are coming back in and, and asking our governor if they could tap into those and see if the, the resources are still there. They're still there, but we're not going uh, yeah. to... How often do you need to check on something you're not going to get? They're, they're not, they know they're not going to get it. But there's always gives a young governor that's coming in might change the whole thing yeah the, that's the, what we're afraid of the the waves of politics is never a stable right. thing you know it's yeah. scary that way yeah so hopefully with the uh with the right religious leaders that we can still manage to hold on that idea and concept of respecting mother earth to where we don't uh profit from it well, and, you know, this kind of segues into another question I had, Octavius, is uh, uh, beyond the earth elements, let's get back into the human or the cultural elements. And I know a lot of things have been taken from all the reservations uh, and all these different sites. Are you having luck repatriating? Are you getting uh, things returned uh, from and you know, uh, to give them a little bit of a break, the guys that end up with these collections, in the old days, if you had a big ranch and found 
things. They ended up on your mantle, and right. it, it was looked at completely differently than uh, it should have been. But it's uh, it's much more acute awareness of of the importance of spiritual tribal ancient objects and stuff. And I just was curious as to how are we doing with repatriating that stuff back to the tribal people. Well, um, we've had the same. Uh, we had Perry Tsaidias, he was a bow priest, and he was the one with uh, Barton Martza and uh, Governor Lewis actively started researching where we had the Ahayuta, the, the protector of the Zuni people, um, were taken off from this very mountain here and taken to all these museums. And once they identified the museums that had the Ahayuta, they started writing letters, you know, wanting to repatriate. And it was back in the 70s that Zuni actually started repatriating the Ahayuta. And to this day, we're still uh, getting Ahayutas coming back into Zuni. Oh. And uh, I, I went to Paris, I went to Germany, I went to Amsterdam, uh, I went to London, I went to Japan, uh, Osaka and Sapporo, looking for um, these important uh, items that left Zuni. And uh, I found them in Germany, Amsterdam, Norwich, England, and London, England had the Ahayuta in their museums. Germany had three, and um, they actually had one that was made by Cushing that was sold to Germany. And it's... Uh, General Cushing? Uh, no, um, the guy that was an uh, uh, ethnographer here with... Oh, uh, oh okay, the ethnographer. Yeah, ethnographer. Okay. He actually made one and sold it to a museum in Germany. But when I saw it, I, it looks the same, but the paint is like poster paint, watercolor. It's pretty bright, and I said, that's not natural paint. They went in and researched and said it was made by Cushing. Then you actually helped identify yeah. that fact. Yeah. So we're, we're still getting some of the items back. Um, and I, I always use this uh, analogy of uh, in order for something like that important piece to leave Zuni, all the people in Zuni had to sign a letter of agreement that it should leave Zuni. And you guys don't have it. So what it means is that you actually had somebody steal it from our reservation and then it ended up here. So if it left without any permission from the tribe, it should go back. Yeah, and that's good. That's reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got Amsterdam now looking into um, repatriating that one that's there. And now I've been in contact with um, the, the museum in Germany that they're actually thinking of repatriating those back to Zuni. So... We started out here in, in North America and some in uh, Canada. All the museums that had the Ahayuta eventually came back to Zuni. And now we're branching out to the European museums, hoping that we can also bring those back. Because they're made to protect the Zuni people. They're not... Cushing uh, is the one that actually called them the war gods. They're not war gods. We never actively had war with anybody. So why should we need a god for war? Yeah, and, and they can't they can't do their job unless they're here. 
Yeah, right? I mean, right. Those, yeah. Those, There's those a succession. Are... There's a, an older brother and a younger brother. The new one is 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 the um, the new brother, the older brother, a uh, younger brother, and he's the one that's put in charge of that whole year to protect the Zuni people. And the one that was in charge is put to rest next to the shrine. And so they're they're all there. And they were all the Hota was. They were past active members of protecting the yeah. people. Is and that they're they're still here. And they're here in this mountain. Yeah, they're here in this mountain. And uh, so when they started coming in, the uh, uh, the Zuni tribe and the bow priest figured out where they can start repatriating and, and storing those. And there's a house that was built, a uh, uh, sandstone house that has an opening on top, but it has barbed wire and, and there's a lock. When you get there, you can see all those Ayut that have been repatriated that came back to Zuni. Oh. So they're there. They, they weren't brought here to uh, because they were taken from here. And they came to Zuni, but that's another uh, important place where they can put up be put up in a mesa overlooking the village itself. Uh, yeah. So they came in, and, and they're per- protecting the people. They're up there looking down into Zuni and making sure that we're all okay. So, and that is what's important more than their original placement. Yeah. Their their position is right. the looking down, I yeah. see. Yeah, there's one up in um, San Francisco. There's one up in Mount Taylor. Oh. There's one up in Eagle Peak that I've been actively trying to locate and I just located it this past year. I know where the Ayuta is in, in Eagle Peak. So it took all these years talking to a lot of different people and finally went through the research with uh, anthropologists, archaeologists in uh, the Gila National Forest. And uh, it was amazing what they found. They actually located where they identified where that Ajayuta is. And there's a spring like this spring here with with that. In, in On the Verde, the Ajayuta were placed as far as the... Reserve. Reserve. Yeah. All the way there, uh, I, I know that oral history states that there was one in San Francisco Peak, uh, yeah, Mount Taylor. So, yeah, and that that would make sense, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, but that, those are a long ways away. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So look at all the the this giant valley that both San Francisco and Mount Taylor, this whole valley, was meant to be protected by the two Ahayuta, the mm-hmm. older brother and the younger brother. So a, a lot of these places were identified as being prominent places where they would be put uh, in a shrine for protection of the people that were in the valley. That is very, very uh, wonderful information right there. And, and yeah, you guys that are listening, uh, if you could see the valley and see where I'm sitting uh, in this mountain above me, oh, oh I wish, uh, I wish this were a, a video thing. You can only rely on my soothing voice to let you know the energy you feel from this place. It's fantastic, and uh, yeah, I have uh, just one more curiosity about the Spanish influence in Zuni. And can you share a little bit of a history uh, that went along with the uh, the Spanish, the early oh the, the early uh, 
the explorers first, the first yeah, the first european contact was in hawiku uh -huh. and um, it's been there's a lot of research that was done different types of research and um, they were saying that akama was the first european contact but with the evidence that was found in hawiku that was the first european contact and that was the first battle that the native people had with the spanish coming in and that was the battle of hawiku and um Jonathan Demp did, uh, got funding to do research, and he actually took a lot of the metal detectors and everything. He found a lot of uh, artifacts that came from Spain. And two of the most important items were the cross bolt tips and then the ar arquebus balls. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. So when they found the balls, they wanted to compare the impact on those arquebus balls. So I told Jonathan, I said, you know, I have a 50 caliber muzzleloader that we can go act, shoot at a, a, a loose pile of sand and figure out how much powder was used. So instead of CSI, ZSI. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ZSI. You get me. <laughs> and we took it out and um, I put in 100 grains and it almost flattened the ball and said, no, it's not that. So I kept putting less and less until uh, we got, found the ball and said, compared it, said, no, still too much power in it. So I went less and less and I said, I'm afraid to shoot it now because my projectile, the round ball might get stuck. So I put the cap on, fired at the same soft uh, pile of sand and it just went poof. A little fire came out and the ball, we could see the ball go and hit the <laughs> sandbank. We picked it up and it was identical to the one that was found. So they didn't have much power no. in their packet, no. so to speak. No, it, it probably didn't kill anybody, but I'm pretty sure if it hit you with the the, the heat, the burn... It'd at least make you angry and angry. give you a bruise. <laughs> but I, I think it was probably the blast, because the Zuni people never heard lightning they heard, but people shooting... And actually, there was... I just found out recently uh, that... When the Zunis were asked uh, right at that time what they saw people come, and they said there was odd-looking people with um, six six feet, six legs, and two heads. Six legs and two heads. So the horse's head, the, the man's head, head the and man's all those head. legs. Yeah. And they, they said they were shiny people. Might have looked like aliens coming in, but at that time. Oh, it time, would have. Yeah. It would have. But it was there in Hawaii that they had the first battle. And uh, I was told that all of the young ladies, the women, left Hawaii and went to Hopi. And there's a place for in Bob protection. For protection. And there, there's a place in Bobkavi that um, the Hopis identify as that being the place for the Zunis because that's where they, they survived. The Hopis took them in and. Now, was there immediately a rejection of the Spanish, or were they brought in, and then it was it decided they were not good for the no, journey, or it was immediately immediate rejection were, of the, their way of life, their their way of approach to their way of approach, right? Yeah, um, there was a lot of bad things that were done to the Zunis just to put the church in. Um, they were forced uh, to work, and if they didn't work, their children were captured and used as hostage, hostages. 
and some of them had their uh, arms and legs chopped off. Oh my goodness. So a lot of bad things happened just to build the churches that are, and that's why we're not like the, the real grand tribes. They have feast days for honoring that they're saints. We don't have anything like that in Zuni. So uh, we, and this is also the place that during, after the Howie Battle of Hawiku, the people ran from there and told the other, like, Matla, uh, Kekechipal, um, all of these other villages that were there were told by the people that were running away from Hawiku, and this is where they came for refuge. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've heard that the, when the Spanish came in, they tried to get to the top and they couldn't. And the Zuni people up there were throwing rocks and everything down. <laughs> and and uh, there were some um, Spanish helmets, the cone helmets were identified down here. Oh, really? And they're still found. Uh, um, some of these artifacts from from Spain are still found within this area here. Oh, man, you, that just takes you back yeah. to think of the that sort of an assault on a, generally a peaceful, kind yeah. place. Yeah. Well, like I told you before we came up here, there's there's two big villages up here, and um, that this is our main place of protection. Is how we survived was to eventually end up there again. And and obviously it's protected and isolated. Very very few people probably go there yeah, now. Yeah, very few. It's people. a very uh, protected area. Yeah. Um, in the past they let different people like the doctors, but I think now they're mainly allowing just the Zuni people to yeah. go up to the top. Well, I, I'm certainly, like I say, honored just to sit at the base of this mountain with you. There's a guy that, a Zuni guy, that has a, um, one of those, what are they called? Uh, like a little helicopter um, drone. Yeah. Actually flew one up there and videotaped the whole top. And it's in, I think, might be in YouTube. If you go to YouTube, uh, Zuni, no, Zuni, Toyalane, uh, or I don't know why some people call it Corn Mountain, but it's not corn. Toa means ancient, so it's the ancient mountain. But there's another word that Ato is actually corn. So somebody up at Cushion found out Ato and Toa almost sounds the same, so he called it Corn Mountain, and that's what people call it. We're trying to change it to the ancient mountain instead of corn mountain because I don't see any significance but this being a corn mountain. Right. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's good to get things straight, you yeah. know, and think of all the crazy things that have happened from poor translation. Yeah. You right. know, in this world. And it's still happening. But, <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, we have to be vigilant and, and wanting to put the right information out. And I think we're now in the process of being a better voice for the Zuni people and, and putting that information out ourselves and changing the narrative of all the, like like Chaco, for instance, Salmon Pueblo, Aztec, all these places. Uh, once we're given an opportunity to go to these places, we can clearly identify what they have and w- where they're wrong. Uh, and I've really corrected uh, Chaco and Aztec in some of the places that they've identified yeah. as being not the right information. 
Well, and unifying the information is, yeah. is a beautiful thing. And yeah. that's exactly, my friend, what you are doing on this podcast because uh, it helps everybody understand better. And the more people that understand, the more we've got on the same in the same place. Yeah. Well, I, wouldn't it be a perfect world if we just respected each other and and not really trying to control the other other person in how you want to think, how you want them to think, but having this respect for each other and having having them do the things that that have we've been doing all these years instead of having like the 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 Mormon the Catholics coming in and really trying to change us. A lot of our, our sacred uh, songs had to go underground because we couldn't sing them openly. Yeah. We were punished. Even growing up, um, going to school, if I didn't go to church, next day I would be sitting in front of everybody holding a, 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 one of those um, wooden dust, dust, uh, dust mops. And you'll be sitting there for a couple of hours and you'll be getting so tired that your arms start falling down and, and the nun would come over with a ruler and slap your hand. And I said, I, I wonder, I was probably the only individual that kept the ruler business in in, in profits because of all the rulers I broke. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? <laughs> well, keep breaking those rulers, <laughs> Mr. Octavius. And I think... Uh, We've pro- kind of run out of time. I know you've got some uh, obligations uh, this afternoon, and um, thank you so much yeah, for, well, for a great visit and a very generous visit. Yeah. Well, we've been trying to do this for a very long time, and and I know we had to go different places, and uh, glad you're out of the river now and making this trip here to Zuni. Well, I'm glad I was here to. Be a yeah, part of this. no, put it together. No, thank you so much. And I look forward to our next river trip. And I look forward to when you come and visit in, in Flagstaff. Okay. And, and we're going to do this again sometime. Yeah, that sounds I good. hope. Yeah. And uh, thank you so much. This is uh, Octavius and Brian's big adventure today. Well, it's, it was good to be a part of this. And, and I know that I'm always in the forefront of trying to put this information about who the Zuni people are. And by the way, uh, we're Ashi. We, we're called, we know ourselves as the Ashi. We, I don't know where Zuni came from, but uh, we're trying to change the name like uh, I know the uh, the San Juan um, changed theirs to Okeowinge. Santa Domingo changed theirs to Giwa, and hopefully we can change Zuni to Ashiwi. And how uh, spell Ashiwi? A- um, S-H-I-W-I I think it's that capital A with the exclamation mark on it um, oh yeah okay to give it that ah shiwi ah um, I've always wanted to ask you and since we're still on here years ago you gave me a name right Namdasha Namdasha um, what is the meaning of Namdasha I've always thought it meant brave lion <laughs> King warrior or something. What what exactly is the meaning of Namdasha? Well, when we first saw you and uh, looked at your stature and your height and and uh, us being Zunis, not not going over five foot uh, seven, <laughs> five foot eight, you were the tallest person, and that's what Namdasha means is uh, a tall person. 
a very tall person. So Nam, Nam is a man. Dasha is tall. Okay, good. Well, so there you go. So can we throw Lionheart or anything else in there? Well, maybe the next time we're in the river and you do something spectacular and we might... Tag something on the end. We might uh, tweak it a little. And... Well, thank you so much. And uh, I suppose we're signing out. I could sit here all day with Octavius, and I bet you guys could too. Well, thanks so much. Well, thank you. And uh, thank you, everybody that's sitting there listening. I hope you are as fascinated with Octavius's stuff as I am. And uh, we wish you all well. I hope you're all healthy and uh, stay right side up. Big Adventures with Brian Durker is supported by Dave Wagner and dedicated to all the scientists and river community who have worked to protect the Colorado River, Grand Canyon, and its environment. Thank you, Dave, for your support of Big Adventures. Big Adventures is produced by Brian Durker, Margaret Knight, and me, Gavin Bugner. Bill Gleckler and his mandolin provide our music. If you like our show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.